Welcome to Pages from Before, a podcast which reviews the history of American states as recorded in our local newspapers. My name is Creighton Olson, and each week I'll travel through four pieces of one state's history, written in 1870, 1920, 1970, and 1995. Join me live on Twitch for recording and discussions every Thursday, or just catch the podcast later wherever you listen. So, pull up a chair around your telegraph, radio, television, or browser, and let's read some pages from before. Hello and welcome to Pages from Before, Episode 2. Each week on Pages from Before, we cover old news stories from one different state. This, uh, this week, the state is Delaware. Our first story is from 1870. Uh, comes from the uh, November 26th Saturday morning edition of the Smyrna Herald, whose tagline is, and I love this, independent in everything, neutral in nothing. And uh, you, can, you can buy copies of the Herald, of course. The terms were $2 a year. Now, newspapers haven't always just been a place for the latest government and crime and sports news. Of course, in, in the 1870s, newspapers were a breeding ground for, for fiction and for prose and poetry. And so I thought it would be really fun to start our series in Delaware with a, a fictional tale that was written specifically for the Smyrna Herald by an author only identified it as Warren. So with that, guys, let's get in. And I'm going to read you the first story for this week's podcast, which is Lola's Revenge. She was very beautiful. Her dark eyes shone brilliantly as she became excited in conversation. Her complexion was a pure alabaster, and even a Cleopatra would have envied her personal charms. She was the only daughter of a Mr. Montrose, who died shortly after the death of his wife, leaving Lola, then about three years old, in the care of his younger brother. He bequeathed his whole fortune to her, of which she became the sole mistress at the age of eighteen. She was now nearly twenty, and as a natural consequence, where beauty and wealth are combined, surrounded by many admirers. She was of Spanish descent, and the jealous temperament so peculiar to that race of people was inherited in her. Quick and passionate, she acted at times as though she was insane. "'Lola, my child,' said her aunt one morning, "'are you going to Mrs. Elliot's tonight?' "'Oh, aunt,' said she, I am tired of being compelled to attend so many companies, but I suppose I must go out of respect to Mrs. Elliot. But is the same thing over again. And giving a slight yawn, she rose and retired to her room. I wonder if he will be there, she murmured to herself. Just at that moment, a servant came to the door and presented a card. Quote, Edgar Deford. With a gesture of impatience, she said, Tell him I will see him in a few moments. I know his motive in calling this morning, she continued. I fancy he loves my money more than myself. And with a smile, she left the room for the parlor, where she found Mr. Deford anxiously awaiting her appearance. After a short conversation on the affairs of the day, he said, You are perhaps aware of the object of my visit? Really, Mr. DeFord, she replied, I must confess ignorance in regard to any knowledge of your motive in calling. 
Lola, said he, I love you. I cannot live without you. Dearest, say you will be mine. Mr. DeFord, exclaimed Lola, rising with great dignity, once and for all, it can never be. And saying this, she swept from the room. Ah, he muttered, she is very dignified today, but I will have her yet. And, taking his hat, he left the house. How are you, old fellow? exclaimed a friend, meeting him on the street. You look rather down at the heel. What is the matter? Enough, he replied. That proud Lola Montrose thinks herself too good for me. She as much as told me so this morning. Ha! Ha! laughed his companion. So you have been fishing there, have you? You are too late, old fellow. Do you know Will Emerson? By sight, yes. Well then, he is the favored one. She is engaged to him. By God, was the manly expression. I will kill him. And taking his friend's arm, they sauntered along until they came to a saloon, which they entered, and calling for drinks, sat down, and were soon engaged in gambling. The brilliantly illuminated parlors of Mrs. Elliot were rapidly filling with the youth and beauty of the city. A young widow herself, she knows how to appreciate and enjoy the pleasures of life. Among a group of gentlemen standing near the door is one whose appearance cannot fail to attract the attention of the observer. Tall and well-formed, with handsome features and glossy black hair, he was a model of manly beauty. Who is it, you ask? It is Will Emerson, the betrothed of Lola Montrose. Presently, two gentlemen walk up together and join the little group. They were presented to Mr. Emerson, who, as soon as politeness would admit, left the circle and went to the other end of the room to speak to Mrs. Elliot. Who is this Mr. DeFord? said he to her after he had conversed a few moments. Oh, really? Don't you know? Why, he has lately made a fortune in oil speculations. He has been rather attentive to Miss Monroe of late. As she made the latter remark, she watched him closely to observe the effects of her words. Ah, why did his cheek pale and he lean against a chair for support? She saw it, and stung by jealousy, for she had long loved him. She observed. She received the attention very kindly too, it is said, and no doubt they will make a brilliant match. Wounded by what he thought his betrothed unfaithfulness, he excused himself to Mrs. Elliot as having a severe headache and immediately left for home without even appealing to Lola. Ha! exclaimed Mrs. Elliot. So far, so good. I will follow it up and nip this little affair in the bud. He will never be anything to me, but she shall not have him. And putting on her sweetest smile, she walked up to Lola. My dear, she said, you are not enjoying yourself. You look tired and sick. I am heart sick, replied Lola. Will has not spoken to me in all the entire evening, and a few moments ago he left for home. Will, said Mrs. Elliot, in well-assumed surprise. Why, my dear, what interest? He was my betrothed, said Lola. Well, this is rich. He not more than ten minutes ago came and offered himself to me, said the widow with a little blush. To you? almost screamed Lola, and a death-like paleness slowly overspread her face. Slowly leaving the room, she ordered her carriage and was driven home. We will return to the party. 
While her guests were enjoying themselves, various emotions were struggling in the breast of Mrs. Elliot. Jealousy, rage, and revenge were the ruling powers that were so overpowering her. As soon as possible, without attracting attention, she beckoned with her finger to Mr. DeFord. "'Allow me to compliment you on your personal appearance this evening,' said he, taking a most profound bow. "'Flatterer!' she exclaimed with a smile. "'We had quite a scene a few moments ago.' "'How so?' said he. "'You must have been napping,' was the polite retort. "'Oh, no, but what was it?' "'Why, Miss Montrose nearly fainted and was obliged to go home. "'She is subject to such spells, it is said.' "'Is that all?' said he. "'I thought something of importance had occurred.' You would make a very fine actor, Mr. DeFord. Why so? he inquired. And that's where our story ends, with a simple concluded next week and a recommendation to subscribe for The Herald, which, again, you can do for $2 a year in 1870. Uh, so that was our first article of the day, Lola's Revenge from the Smyrna Herald from November 26th. 1870. Thrilling? Uh, you know, it was all right. Let's move on. Now, on this podcast, I always strive to find local news stories, but I do think it's important to cover some international and some uh, national news as well, just so we get a full picture uh, of sort of what was going on uh, both in the United States and in the world. So this next story from uh, October 3rd, 1920, actually comes from a report in Washington, but covers some international news. So, from October 3rd, 1920, in the Wilmington, Delaware, Sunday Morning Star, we have a report from Russia. The story is thus. Report. Russian peasants plot overthrow of Bolshevik regime. Emissaries of Peasants' Union on way to Paris, London, to report their plans for revolution. Peasant Uprisings Reported Washington, October 2nd Russian peasants are plotting an uprising to overthrow the Bolshevik government, according to advices to the government today. These advices come on the heel of press dispatches that a wave of anti-Bolshevik feeling is sweeping Russia, coming apparently from factory workers as well as peasants. A definite organization of peasants for a revolution against the Moscow government is taking shape, the advices state. Recently, Emissaries of the Union of Peasants in Soviet Russia passed through Poland on their way to Paris and London to report to these allied governments the plans for a revolution, according to government information. Military observers here now have lost all trace of the peasant envoys. It is assumed, however, that if the report of their journey through Poland was correct, they are now in France or England. In the light of the government information, military officials were interested in dispatches telling of the anti-Bolshevik wave. Military men believe the present situation in Soviet Russia marks the beginning of a new crisis for the Moscow regime, although they point out that Lenin and Trotsky may cling on to power for a long while yet. According to reports here, the peasant envoys to the Allied capitals are not seeking material support from France and England. The peasants intend only to report their plans to the Allied governments and obtain moral support. The French government already expects a revolution within Soviet Russia and is making plans to throw support to an anti-Bolshevik government, it is understood. Previous to the reports today of an anti-Bolshevik wave, military advices here told of uprisings of peasants throughout Soviet Russia. 
peasant uprisings have occurred at Petrograd, Novograd, and Omsk. At Omsk, peasants took control of the city from the Soviet, but later were forced out. Hostility to the Moscow regime is showing among the peasants in attempts of the Bolshevik authorities to commandeer food from the rural populations from a small number of adherents to Bolshevism. Even in the country districts just outlying from large cities, the strongholds of Bolshevism in Russia, military force has to be resorted to to extract food supplies from the peasants, it is reported. So there you go. The Bolsheviks may be overthrown soon, uh, courtesy of the Wilmington, Delaware Sunday Morning Star. So that'll wrap up the uh, 1920s for us, and we're going to move on now to our next story, which comes from just 50 years ago, 1970. Some of the best stories that I have come across in all of my research have been from very, very tiny newspapers uh, that either have, like, local interest stories or opinion pieces that are, I mean, just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so I know I say that usually I try and stay away from things like politics uh, and crime and war stories, uh, but this opinion article, I think, is well worth reading as it does sort of capture the feeling of the times uh, and, and provides a really unique viewpoint from the 1970s. So this comes to us now from the Newcastle Gazette in Newcastle, Delaware, and was published on Wednesday, February 4th, 1970. The title of the article is Operation Patriotism, and it's written by uh, Master Sergeant Joe Pfister. In the University of Delaware Library last week, I came across a news publication lying unpretentiously on a windowsill. In it, were cartoons of a tough, cigar-smoking G.I. happily machine-gunning a Vietnamese infant, and another vulgarly blaspheming the Peace Corps. Every article contained anti-war, anti-Nixon, and anti-everything propaganda. A very happy paper. Without mentioning its name, open bracket, the less glorification, the better, close bracket, I consoled myself with the knowledge that it was distributed by the, quote, new left, unquote, and I found out just who. The students for a democratic society. That's who. For want of a better paraphrase, quote, sect for the demoralization of souls, end quote. With headquarters in Chicago, 500 branches and a membership of 70,000, these predominantly white, middle-class students are zealously advocating the complete overthrow of the U.S. system. They vehemently embrace the Marxist-Leninist theory, communism, and our only consolation is that they do reject Moscow and Peking's guidance. Filled with wholesome energy they go about, sponsoring agitation campaigns, lobbying against legislative bills, raising funds through false fronts, teaching Marxist doctrines, supplying speakers for, quote, peace and, quote, civil rights rallies, organizing marches and sit-ins, printing un-American literature, and recently one of their leaders, Cameron Bishop, made the FBI's top 10 most wanted list on suspicion of sabotage. That's real success, baby. The next day, after my visit to the library, I politely asked a cute, bespectacled co-ed on Delaware Avenue why she was handing out, same paper, prose that brimmed with pornographic four-lettered adjectives. She snarled, Don't read it, mister, if you can't take the truth. Snickering triumphantly, she hustled off. 
if you are ever so lucky as to have such priceless trash fall into your hands, you will read a very despairing tabloid. It glows with dissent for everything no hope. Mainly, it seems, because there's a war on. But how can these people blame all our woes on the war? We've always had war. It's been our cross to bear for liberty since the inception of this great country. And all the draft card burnings, pot smoking, love-ins, campus disruptions, and chaotic protest marches that they can muster isn't going to help these young people as individuals, or this nation's role as leader of the free world. We are a country of survivors, and it takes more than groups showing off and disgracing our flag. This modern era of permissiveness, open bracket, do your own thing, close bracket, is exactly what our enemies want. Defeating us militarily is out of the question, so they patiently exploit our rising materialism, irreligion, and lack of faith in our society. Given time and goodwill, I am confident our state and federal governments will right the wrongs and injustices that have been caused by ignorance and mistakes in our system. What I continually ponder is, if groups like the SDS can be so deceived into accepting a manifesto inspired from disrespect, obscenity, and hate, just think what we could really do with truth, justice, and love. But first, there must be a breakthrough from the polluted, unconcerned air of tepidity that seems so prevalent today, and we must put the clamps on, quote, all caps, greed, close quote. Or, like fallen Rome, we will have the same immoral earthquake, and everyone will say, What happened? And there you have it. That was Operation Patriotism by Master Sergeant Joe Fister from the, uh, the Newcastle Gazette, Wednesday, February 4th, 1970. So I think the, the message really from that, the takeaway, you know, buy stock in Richard Nixon. He seems like a good chap. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our fourth article of the day. Uh, going to be from 1995. Of course, in 1970, the U.S. had a very complex relationship with war and peace. Our nation sort of torn between two po- what seemed to be polar opposites, unable to come to a uh, unable to come to common ground. So. I thought I'd find one last story today uh, that actually has nothing to do with military, even though the title may sound somewhat militaristic. This comes to us from uh, Friday, August 25th of uh, 1995 in a weekly publication of a paper called the Cape Gazette. The title is Military Operation Adding Tanks and Armored Cars to Reef System by Dennis Forney. Several National Guard units, and at least one British military unit, are joining forces this weekend to plant a variety of obsolete Vietnam-era armored vehicles off Delaware's coast as an artificial reef. Part of a military exercise known as Reefex, the activity off Delaware's coast is a small part of the total exercise, which will see a total of 120 vehicles submerged along the mid-Atlantic coast this weekend. According to Jeff Tinsman, director of Delaware's Artificial Reef Program, the armored vehicles have been cleansed and made environmentally harmless before their burial at sea. Tinsman said 20 of the vehicles will be placed at a site in Delaware waters 16 miles due east of Indian River Inlet. 
This site is the deepest ocean site that we have identified as part of our new artificial reef system, said Tinsman. The vehicles will be put in 65 to 88 feet of water, where we feel they have the best potential as a high visibility site for divers. Delaware's waters aren't real good for visibility, but under the right conditions, these should offer fair visibility. They should be the next best thing to a shipwreck which divers really enjoy. Tinsman said the military vehicle reefs should also attract a variety of sea life for the benefit of fishermen. The units to be reefed in Delaware waters include 17 armored personnel carriers, two M60 battle tanks, and one M551 Sheridan tank. Placing the units underwater, off the coast, will be the final step in a military exercise focusing on mobilizing heavy equipment. The military exercise involves National Guard units from around the country working together and with civilian organizations to transport heavy, heavy military equipment by truck and rail. The end product, said Tinsman, is being donated to the State Reef Program. The obsolete vehicles were cleaned to Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, standards at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and were then transported to Naval Weapons Station Earl at Asbury Park, New Jersey. He said guardsmen housed at the Bethany Beach National Guard training camp would be involved in the final part of the exercise, which would see them meeting up with the vehicles which are being barged down the coast from New Jersey. Tinsman said it's estimated that there are about 10,000 of the obsolete military vehicles stored around the country, taking up space and posing environmental dangers. There are 3,500 of these parked shoulder to shoulder at one airbase in Alabama. They are army units and the Air Force wants to start charging for the space. Some of, them being, some of them are being scrapped, but it's been determined that there's twice the returns to society if these units are used for providing fish habitat as opposed to being sold for scrap, said Tinsman. He said 110 of the units were placed as reefs, primarily off the coast of Alabama in 1994. There's a goal of placing 600 of them for reefs in 1995, he said. Delaware has a total of 11 artificial reef sites being developed along the state's bay and ocean shoreline. On Thursday, August 24th, a load of concrete and tire units were placed on one of the sites on the shore, on the shears, about 4.5 miles due north of Roosevelt Inlet at Luz. And that ends our fourth story, a military operation adding tanks and armored cars to reef system there. What an interesting play. Uh, if any of you do live in Delaware and you're, you're near where this has happened, uh, I would love to hear if you've ever been diving and seen any of these tanks that they dumped off the coast in 1970. I feel like it would be really, really interesting to go diving there and check out just all these randomly sunk Sheridan tanks and armored personnel carriers. <laughs> well, that wraps up our four main articles for the day, uh, covering 1870 with Lola's Revenge, uh, the report of the Russian peasants from 1920, Operation Patriotism from 1970, and then the article from 25 years ago about dropping tanks off the Delaware coast for a reef system. Now, I do want to surprise you. We will try and do, as I'm researching, I often find great stories that just don't quite fit in anywhere else into the podcast. So this is an honorable mention, the bonus section, uh, which is going to be an article from 1920 for our final article reading of the podcast. These bonus episodes are intended as sort of a, a fun little tag on the end of the episode. These are stories that I find that were just so entertaining or so interesting, I couldn't resist not including them. Uh, so this one comes to us from the Newark Post of Newark, Delaware. Uh, the article from January 14th, 
1920. And the title of the article is Health Clown Entertains School Children Friday. Tells how to have strong bodies and alert minds. Here we go. Cho-Cho, the inimitable health clown, visited Newark on Friday afternoon and delighted the pupils of both the white and the colored schools with sleight of hand and funny stunts while he taught them some vital facts about personal cleanliness and healthful diet. He was scheduled to arrive at 2.30, and a few minutes before that time, the colored children from the local district assembled in the balcony of the YMCA and the white children on the main floor. Previous to his arrival, the children, under the leadership of Y Secretary W. Paul Babu, sang popular songs. The colored children, under the leadership of Miss C. L. Waddleton, sang a two-part Christmas song with good effect. Chocho's appearance was greeted with shouts of applause, and his clumsy attempts to mount the platform, his persistent dropping of contagious merriment put the children in the best of humor. His motion to excuse the teachers and be teacher himself was greeted with hearty applause. With clever antics and bubbling laughter, he instructed the children in the proper methods of cleaning the teeth, the need of fresh air, the proper posture, and the kinds of food to be eaten. Then he carried in a huge basket and drew from the children what of the products carried were good food and what were not good for them. The frying pan as a cooking utensil he denounced by showing that wherever he found one used to prepare food for children or for adults, he put his name on it with a hatchet. After his health talk was over, he put the children through an examination, which disclosed the fact that many of the children drink tea and coffee for breakfast. They remembered every point he made with regard to proper food and answered all questions without hesitation. He performed a number of sleight-of-hand tricks. He displayed a number of medals won for athletic prowess, which he ascribed to right food and right living. He told also why he is giving these health talks throughout the United States. He has the endorsement of over 1,000 physicians, before whom he gave an exhibition performance in Atlantic City. They were unanimous in the opinion that this method of teaching health rules would give excellent results because the children would remember the pleasant associations and recall the facts taught. These doctors recommended that his plan be taken up by the Department of the Interior at Washington. He gave an exhibition there and soon began his tour under the auspices of this department and of the Red Cross. His services were secured for this state by Miss Emily P. Bissell of the Executive Committee of the Delaware Chapter of the Red Cross, and he is touring the state, visiting schools which made the best record in the sale of Red Cross Christmas seals. So there you have it. Cho Cho, the inimitable health clown, entertaining both, uh, both sections of children there at the Newark YMCA in 1920. So that is going to do it for us, folks, for the first, for the second episode, rather, the first full episode of Pages from Before. I hope you have enjoyed these stories from Delaware, and I wanted to thank you all for stopping by and, uh, and listening to it. If you guys have any suggestions for stories that you would love to hear in the future, if you have any great ideas about uh, what your state has done or any stories from your state in the time period that we're talking about, please feel free to share them with me on social media. The podcast can be found on Twitter at PagesFromBefore. Uh, my name is Creighton Olson. I am the writer, creator, and producer of this podcast. Uh, special thanks this week to all four of our papers 
and for the Chronicling America project, which has helped me to uh, find many, many of these papers. Uh, we will be back next week, recording, of course, on uh, February 13th, the day before Valentine's Day, four stories from the state of Pennsylvania. Our first story for next week covers the terrors of alcohol through prohibition, and the article's title is A New Horror. So join me next week. February 13th will be the live recording of episode three of Pages from Before. Thank you all, and have a great day.